Let's uh, look at Luke 17 tonight, Luke 17, first 10 verses. We'll stand together to hear Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. Now hear the very word of God. Then said Jesus unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It would be better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turns again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto the sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it shall obey you. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, Go and sit down to meat? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I trow not. So likewise you, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, let me introduce this passage. We're going to move into verses 3 through 10 tonight. Last week, we looked at the first two verses. So I'd like to review. I'd like to give you some introductory comments first. One of the things I think we forget about when uh, approaching God's Word, whether it be in the exegesis of it from the pulpit or whether it be in your private devotions, is that we forget the audience. Who's the audience to which our Lord is speaking in this passage, we, we, we pass over the audience. The audience is important. It gives us context. If we forget who he's talking to, we lose something of the meaning or the objective of his message. And here we find in verse 1 that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, which is us. So Jesus is speaking to his church here. He's not speaking to the hoi polloi. It's a word used for the crowds. He's not speaking to... The Pharisees, not speaking to apostates, he's not evangelizing to publicans. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. And that's important because we are his disciples in the church of Christ. And he is also speaking to the leaders of the church. Those who would lead the church for the upcoming decades into the second century. John would live probably into almost into the second century. So he's speaking to those who would lead the church in the next 60 to 70 years. And he's speaking to those who are leading in the church today. This teaching is not meant for a broad audience. This teaching is meant for Christians. And he's giving us the heads up. Now it's not as if the rest of the world really wants to know what Jesus has to say. That's true. But here's a very specific message to us, that is, those who are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. He says, you know, offenses will come, and we talked about that last week, didn't we? Satan is going to stumble. Satan is going to tempt you. 
He's going to discourage you. He's going to harass you. He's going to bring about terrible offenses, even to these little ones who believe in me. He will see that Judas and Alexander the coppersmith will bring all of this about. So God is in control of these things. And God will use Judas and Alexander the coppersmith to bring about these trials, these difficulties for the church of Jesus Christ. So we started with the message about God's sovereignty last week. We looked at the fact that God ordains all events or whatsoever comes to pass. God sets all of these things up without being the author of sin. He fully intends for there to be offenses. It's always always interesting how carefully these things are worded. I'm always amazed at how, you know, he, he, he handles the issues of God's sovereignty so carefully here, where he says it is impossible that offenses, uh, it is impossible but that offenses will come. It's impossible that offenses will not come or it's impossible that they, uh, that offenses, it is impossible but that offenses will come is the way it's put in the King James Version. So it's put in a very careful way. You say, well, does God cause the sin? No, it's impossible that they will not happen because God is sovereign over the fact that they will happen. God is sovereign over the events, and God has a different reason for the events that are happening because you have a different intention or motive involved. So I don't want to go over last week again, but that's the essence of what Jesus is telling us here, that every church will face it, every pastor will experience offenses. That's what the church will all be all about, will be offenses. But he says, woe unto them through whom they come. And the reason for that is that God is still the judge. And this is important, I think, for the upcoming verses. We're going to look at verses 3 through 10 in just a moment. But God is the judge. Woe to those that offend the church, especially the least of these, my brothers. And if there was any doubt as to whether or not Jesus is concerned about his church, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 has that unusual warning that if anybody... Uh, offends the church of Jesus Christ or attempts to destroy the church, there it says, God will come and destroy him. So one of the most fearful things I've ever encountered has been the divisive people that have crept into the churches or the apostates that have come into the church and caused much havoc within the church. And then I have watched, not what man does to them, what, what God does to them, and it is some of the most horrific stories that I could ever tell you. So in my some 30 years of ministry, I have seen what God will do to people who harm his church. And I think I've said this before, you don't mess with Texas, but you certainly don't mess with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not really that funny either. You know, it's just dead serious. I'm telling you that people that do damage to the church of Jesus Christ will pay for it. They do. Some of the most frightening things I've ever experienced. So I'm just saying these words are very much true, brothers and sisters. One of the things you will discover is that the devil loves to pick off the weak sheep. It's not just the little ones. We talk about the children that are oftentimes offended by our systems or institutions or even by their own mothers and fathers. We gave examples of that last week. But, but I've also noticed that as a shepherd that divisive people will usually bring their gossip and slander to the weakest sheep in the church. 
the people who are most likely to stumble. In fact, I will tell you this, that a pastor could sit down in his office, look at the church directory, and forecast the three sheep most likely to be offended by a divisive person next week. And he would nail it every time. It is amazing how divisive people love to go after the weakest sheep with their bad talk, their slander, their gossip, or whatever it is. But again, the warning comes that Jesus says, if you offend the least of these who believe in me, it would be better for him that a millstone be hanged around his neck and he be drowned at the bottom of the sea. So the lesson here is that God is the judge. God is the judge. Rest assured that God will take care of injustices. And that's going to get us into the next section. God is not sitting there in the heavens wringing his hands, wondering what the devil is going to do next. He is the mighty general over the hosts of heaven. And sometimes pastors may see their churches blow up and 17-week sheep trying to survive as they float around in their life preservers. But somehow Jesus will always come to rescue his sheep. The judge of the earth will eventually tread out the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. Righteousness will always prevail. Just count on it. So there's no sense in being afraid that somehow the church isn't going to make it or somehow these horrible forces of darkness are going to destroy the efforts of Jesus and his church. That's just not going to happen, brothers and sisters. The judge of the earth is very much uh, alive and well, and he will do that which is right. I think this is the most understated question in all of the Bible. It comes back to us again and again. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Does it make sense that the judge of the earth will judge righteously? And he's not going to drop the ball with this. And I do believe these are comforting words. These are comforting words. But then now, on to verse 3. It's interesting how quickly Jesus comes around to personal application. First, he says, woe to all those people out there who stumble the little ones who believe in me. But it's interesting how quickly he comes back around. You see that in verse 3? Very first words of verse 3, what does he say? He says, but take heed to yourselves. You know, it's easy for us to say, yeah, but that Judas and that Alexander the coppersmith, and these are doing such terrible things to the churches. You know, oh, those bad people out there. I hope somebody takes care of it. You know, I hope God brings his judgment upon them. But quickly, Jesus comes back around. It's interesting to see this. Take heed to yourselves. This is the pattern of, of Jesus' teaching. It should be the pattern of our thinking as well. How do we respond to Judas and Alexander the coppersmith and the two officers of the Christian Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who are pro-abortion Democrats, just elected, committing to fight for child killing in America. You know, we're, we're rather upset about that. You know, and the, the, the uh, Christian Reformed Church has committed themselves not to bring any church discipline to these representatives, their Democrat representatives that are going to uh, commit themselves to to increase the amount of child killing going on in the country. And so we see these things. And we res- how do we respond to this? Well, Jesus quickly comes back and says, now take heed to yourselves. Watch yourself. Get your eyes off of Judas and the problems with everybody else in the world. Take heed to yourself, is what he says. Let's come back to ourselves. Focus not so much on the sins of others or the terrible injustices that go on in the world. 
But take heed to yourselves. I'm not saying it isn't appropriate to, to glance over at Alexander the coppersmith who did me so much harm. That's okay. It's a mention. But, but we always come back to this in the way that we think, the way that we, we interact with each other, right? We're not complaining about politics and the Christian Reformed churches and all the rest. Rather, it's take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. Three lessons that our Lord gives us in this passage. Three lessons to take away. Here are these lessons for you and, and for me. The first lesson is this. God is in the business of taking care of the justice issues in the world. Thank God He is in charge of that. He is the judge of the world. He is the standard of justice. He's the one who is offended. God's law is the only law that's been violated. It's not your law. It's not my law. And we don't have to be personally offended that somebody has broken my law or your law, but that they have broken God's law. God is the one offended. Jesus is the one offended because these little ones belong to Him. And they believe in Him, and God will take care of this. The justice department of the universe is not ours, except so much as the civil magistrate follows through on God's requirements. So we understand that's Romans chapter 13. But if you back up into Romans chapter 12, it's interesting, in Romans 13, he's described as, the civil magistrate is described as God's ruler to exercise God's vengeance upon those who do evil. So the civil magistrate's responsibility is not to exercise the vengeance of the people or the vengeance of the nation or his own vengeance, but God's vengeance upon those who do evil. That's the responsibility of the magistrate. But if you back up a few verses just off of 13, you'll see in chapter 12 and verse 17, the vengeance department is not ours. Romans 13, 17, listen, repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the vengeance department is not ours. God is the judge. God is the one saying, woe. Jesus says, woe. Jesus will go after those who do wrong. Lesson number two, here's the second lesson to take from verses three and four. There it is, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. We are not in the justice department. We are in the business of uncomfortable, tough love. Loving confrontation, loving, messy engagement with our brothers and sisters, and forgiveness. And that's tough. That's hard. That's tough love. Love in the body of Christ is tough love. We, we get messy in the body of Christ. Messy in relationship. We don't avoid relationship in the body. We don't avoid the tough meetings in the body. We don't avoid the tough conversations. We do not avoid the brother. We do not avoid confrontation. We do not walk away. We do not get angry with our brother. We do not create grudges. We do not countenance rifts. And we do not build walls. That would not be the body of Christ. The body of Christ is about messy relationships. 
and the willingness on every member of the church to get all messed up in these messy relationships. If you're going to be involved in the true church of Jesus Christ, then brothers and sisters, you've got to be all in to mess. That's just, this is probably the most basic lesson our Lord has given us as a heads up for, by the way, the church is coming. This is how you're going to interact as brothers and sisters for the next 2,000 years. Actually, there isn't much content on this in Scripture. This is the core stuff of the body. It's just a mess. Now, the world says, don't go away mad. Just go away. Right? Isn't that what the world says? I don't want the relationship. I don't want to stay involved, stay engaged, stay into the messy confrontations and the, the, the restorations and the repentances and the forgivenesses and, and everything it will take over the next three to four years to restore the relationship. I'm just not into this. That's the way the world puts it. But brothers and sisters, we are in this up to our elbows. We engage in tough love. We're okay with messiness. This is what we're all about. We don't just say, oh, let my brother go to hell. I don't have time for this. I don't care about him. We, we don't want to say, I don't want to risk his rejection, his disapprobation, his attacks on me and my family. No, no, no. We're going to get hurt in this church. This is what the church is about. It's about getting hurt. Oh, absolutely. We don't gossip about my brother's problems with others. Give, give me a little group therapy to help myself deal with his offense against me. I don't do that. We don't do that. That isn't the church of Jesus Christ. Not at all. We don't sit around thinking about his sin against us. We're most concerned about his relationship with God because his sin is primarily against God, not against you or me. Again, verses 3 and 4, take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespasses against you, rebuke him. If you repent, forgive him. Now, I'd like to say this evening, welcome to the fellowship of the Christian church. What is it like to be part of the church? What, if we were to give this to somebody joining for the first time, what, what is it like being part of the body of Christ? What would it be like if I was to be part of the body of Christ, if I was to believe in Jesus and be part of the body of Christ, how does the body function? Give, give me a sense for what the church would be like. Jesus gives it to us here in these verses. Five things. Five things. First, this is how the body functions. As you become part of the body of Christ, a true Christian over 15, 20, 25 years, you will realize that this is the very warp and the woof of the Christian life. Five extremely familiar aspects of life in the body of Christ. Number one, the Christian life in the body involves sin and offenses. We will offend one another. Now, the honeymoon stage, right? The honeymoon stage. In church hopping, this, this is very convenient. You just you know, jump into a church for six months, get through a honeymoon stage, and then move on to the next honeymoon stage. You don't get close enough. You don't build relationships. You don't get to know people. But once you've been part of the body for long enough, you're going to get a sense for the idiosyncrasies the sinful tendencies, the problems, the, the, the areas in which they fall short. The Christian life in the body involves sin and offenses. 
So as you are involved in the Christian church and you want to be part of the body of Christ, you're going to see that brothers and sisters sin. They fall short in terms of their orthodoxy. They fall short in terms of their orthopraxy. They will irritate you. They will not meet your expectations. Number two. So again, five extremely familiar aspects of life in the body. Number one, Christian life in the body involves sin and offenses. Number two, the Christian life in the body must involve confrontation. Confrontation. Loving confrontation. Concerned confrontation. There must be confrontation in the body. And that's not just with the elders. This is spoken to the body of Christ. We have to be able to go to our brother. That's Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 18, and now again Luke chapter 17. These are the basics for life in the body. Now, this must not degrade into high levels of judgmentalism, nitpickiness, or endless tit-for-tat arguments. You must consider the severity of your brother's sin and whether you give way to these types of sin yourself. You have to not be addressing a sin in your brother's life if you've been guilty of these things yourself. How many times have you interrupted somebody or spoken in an impatient, angry tone of voice to your wife in the last seven days, for example? How many times have you engaged in these sorts of behaviors? You can't begin confronting your brother on these things until you've removed the log from your own eye. For example, here's another example I can think of. If you have not given way to the temptation of pornography for 15 years, you can confront your brother concerning that sin. But if you've given way to it 15 days ago, you have no right to confront your brother on that. So th- these should be fairly obvious things. Now, it's true that you know we, we all probably address our husbands or wives with an impatient tone of voice. We probably have some of these things in our own lives, and so it's difficult for us to really minister to another couple in some of these areas because we're struggling in those areas ourselves. So until we have pulled the log out of our own eye, we're just not not in the place where we can help a brother or a sister that are dealing with some of these sins. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 18 Both speak of, well, dropping your gift at the altar and going to your brother. In the one case, it has to do with your brother holding some kind of an offense against you. In the other case, in Matthew 18 or Luke chapter 17, it has to do with somebody offending you or sinned before you and now you feel an obligation to go and bring that to him. But either way, the Bible is very clear on this. You must go to your brother. Do not speak to other people about the issue. Do not email your brother. Do not call your brother on the phone. And whatever you do, do not text your brother. Go to your brother. It has to be a face-to-face meeting. In fact, Jim Mill used to tell the story. I, I don't know who it was. But it was in the first couple centuries of the church. Somebody had taken offense with a brother all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. Now, back in that day... You couldn't just get on a plane and fly over the Mediterranean to Rome. You couldn't do that. You had to get in a boat and do this for a very long time. For those of you listening on the tape, I'm rowing. 
But and it, it took him, I think, months to get to his brother. He went to his brother. He brought the issue to his brother face to face. And that's what we're to do as well, brothers and sisters. Again, this is the messy life of the Christian church. We're used to this. We're up into it up to our eyeballs. It's, it's a good thing for us to, to be engaging this with our brothers and sisters because we love them so much and we really do want the very best for them. And so we have no trouble, hopefully, confronting them on things like this. Now, after confronting a brother, I have so much to say about it, but here's one thing I just throw out. You follow up with him. Don't just throw him under the bus and walk away. Don't, you know, drive past his home and throw a rock with a note through his plate glass window and then scooch away. You know, don't, don't do that kind of thing. Um, be concerned. Follow up. Continue walk with your brother. Um, pray with him and pray for him. Assure him of your acceptance and your forgiveness as you go. All right, that's number two. The Christian life is the... In the, in the body, the Christian life in the body must involve confrontation. Let's move on to number three. The Christian life must involve repentance as well. Repentance is not a change of behavior. It's very important to realize that. If you read Mormon literature, it's very interesting. They talk about repentance all the time. That's their big thing. Just reading some Mormon literature this last week. And I just love repentance. That's their thing. Well, they confuse it totally with the fruits of repentance. That's the problem. The Bible is very careful to distinguish repentance from the fruits of repentance, and that the Mormons do not do. Repentance is not a change of behavior. Repentance is a change of mind. Now, you, you say, yes, but a change of mind will yield a change of behavior. That's true. That's absolutely true. But you see here in this passage, the brother is saying, I repent seven times in one day, where very possibly you have no ability to double-check his fruits. All you can do is forgive him seven times in a row. And, of course, pray that the fruits of repentance will follow. But the repentance is a change of mind. Habits are hard to break, and the brother may continue in sin in this particular area for a very long time. But still, there needs to be a change of mind, which I know can can only be verified by a change of life. I get it. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is, if he says to you, I agree, I repent, what I did was wrong, and I shouldn't be doing that, he's got something of a change of perspective or change of mind going on, at least in the conversation, and Jesus is saying, you receive that, and you offer him your forgiveness. That's what he's saying. Okay, so the Christian life in the body involves repentance. Number four, the Christian life in the body also involves this constant flow of forgiveness. Now, we've been over this before, but I think it's very important. I, I really believe that every member of this church should memorize the categories of forgiveness. They should know what the categories are. You can get them easily from Ken Sandy's book on the peacemaker but you can, of course, get it from Scripture. The, the word itself means to release. Forgiveness is to release. It's to let it go. And as somebody once put it, it's taking that right, 
you wrote down on that note that right to hold something against and to to make you pay for what you did to me and, and to just hold that. Okay, that's that's not forgiving. But when you let it go, when you're when, when your hand opens up and you just let it drop, that's forgiveness. Again, three different categories of forgiveness. The first is to release to the right to revenge. Or the right to punish you for hurting me. Now, the Word of God gives us this in no uncertain terms. We are never to hold that right. We do not have that right. We have no right to hold that right. We are not to hold the right to punish somebody else for what they did to us. We always release the right to avenge. Secondly, we release the right to remember. This is a process. This is the process of restoring relationship. Then thirdly, there's the release the right to restitution. So releasing the right to revenge, releasing the right to remember, and releasing the right to restitution. Now, again, there's different ways to present that. The reason I present it this way is because there's three R's and I can remember it this way. But, brothers and sisters, perhaps it would be best to say it this way. We must forgive as God forgives. We are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. So maybe that's the better way to say it. So you say, well, how am I to be forgiving my brother or sister seven times a day when they've offended me in the very same way? Well... We are to forgive as God forgives us, which means that He doesn't hold things against us. He doesn't hold things against us as if we are in debt to Him, or as if He must punish us for what we have done. Forgiveness is releasing the right to revenge, or the right to punish you for hurting me. Now, this particular section speaks of the brother. With unbelievers, let me just say briefly, with unbelievers... We must still not take vengeance on them either. But we are not under obligation to restore relationship with them. We might have to navigate a wide berth around them. Be careful not to cast pearls before swine and do what we can to live at peace with all men. But at the same time, whether it's a brother or not a brother, we are never to engage this vengeful attitude towards others. We're always to release the right to revenge. What are the ways in which we might make the brother pay for what he did to me or to you? Well, if we forgive our brother, we don't harbor evil thoughts against him. Because those evil thoughts against our brother are means by which we are still engaging in some form of revenge against him. We don't gossip about him turning others against the brother. If you revert back to that, you've still not forgiven him. We don't even avoid him in the church, but rather receive him. We don't assume that he will never change. We actually hope the best for him. We hope that his profession of faith in Jesus Christ is real and that faith will yield victory for him. Now, what about the restoration of trust? This is one of the questions that I've grappled with a great deal myself. What about the restoration of trust? The restoration of trust in a relationship is always a process. Now, I believe that in the body of Christ, we have a desire for this, and we do our best to engage the process in this. 
Now, we can't rebuild trust in one day, but that's the intent of the forgiving spirit. Again, so as, as we have released the right to revenge, we're still engaging, initiating the business of restoring trust. That's our desire. That's what we want to see happening. Now, let me ask you about this. What about this popular thing in Christian counseling circles today called boundaries? Or clinical psychodynamic ego psychology. Okay? It's called boundaries. Very popular today. First off, remember the individual does not have the right to set boundaries and excommunicate believers from his life. Now, some people do this. And I've heard this, not necessarily in this church, but I've heard it in some churches where people say, well, I've excommunicated all these people. I say, well, are you an elder in your church? No, I'm just some guy. I just run around excommunicating people. Um, that's not your responsibility. You see, Matthew 18 said, we tell it to the church, and the church makes the call. Not you. So this boundary idea in terms of excommunicating other believers from your life, is off limits for the individual Christian. The church leadership does have the authority to bind things on earth, to excommunicate, to require shunning in certain situations. And even the church leadership is under authority of the book of church order and the presbytery in Presbyterian forms of government. Also, you have to realize that appoints the civil magistrates called to in, engage justice and to set boundaries on criminal matters. But our Christian maturity does not come about by managing boundaries, judging some toxic, unsafe, and, uncon and controlling types of people. It's a humanist cop-out in an age where the church is disintegrating and the once robust Christian faith is collapsing into humanist categories. The Christian life is a breathtaking faith walk that extends far beyond the humanist categories and cop-outs. We will get hurt, potentially seven times a day. Your job is not to engage in the full-time process of managing every situation in your life so you won't get hurt. We must deny ourselves, take up the cross daily and follow Jesus. Remember, a servant's not above his master. Jesus was beaten. We will be beaten. Now, again, I'm not saying the civil magistrate doesn't act. I'm not saying that the church magistrate doesn't act at points. But Jesus was denied by Peter, his own disciple. The same thing happens to us. God calls us to walk the second mile. We will humbly put ourselves above others. We will forgive our brother seven times a day. We will engage the process of reconciliation. We will do good to those who despitefully use us. We will reconcile with one another. We'll persevere in the fire and rejoice in tribulations. Our primary concern is vertical. When people get angry with us and curse us, they're angry with God. They sin against God. We're not so much concerned with ourselves, our own honor and safety, as we are about the honor of God and the souls of these people who are going off to hell. We're concerned about that, aren't we? We're not so much concerned about other people's sins as we are about our own sins. Are we forgiving others seven times a day? Are we repenting of our own sins? These are the things that matter. Now, as I come to this point, you say, well, that's just impossible. 
What you have laid out for us tonight is impossible. Every psychologist, every Christian psychiatrist in America would say that this message that I have presented tonight is totally impossible. To which I say, read the next verse. And the apostles said unto him, increase our faith. That's a good response. Yeah. Amen, brother. Oh, man. And the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say to the sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and planted in the sea, and it should obey you. That's kind of radical. That's exactly the kind of faith that Jesus is calling his people to. Jesus is calling us to the impossible. Conflict resolution is impossible. In fact, I've heard brothers or sisters comment on this before. I say, wow, there is no way. There is no way that this church or the Columbus church or any other church is going to make it over this to which we say, yes, it is impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. I know it's a challenge to faith. I know this is an impossible life. But by faith, we will move mountains. By faith, we will rip up oak trees and replant them several counties that direction. (laughs) That's what we're going to do by faith. Amen, brothers and sisters. So the only way in which the Christian life may be lived, and this is point number five, is by faith and loving obedience to God. I'm completely out of time, and I want to do these other verses. Todd, you may just have to do these other verses next week, because I just hate to just run over these so quickly. So I'm sorry, brother. I told you I'd finish tonight. I can't. All I can say is that the only way that we can live this life in this church is by a faith that can move mountains and by a right view of ourselves, our identity, our position of privilege in the household of God. And this is the parable of the servant who comes in after a hard day and then he's got to make his master's dinner. And then even after that, we say we are unprofitable servants. And so, brothers and sisters, we are privileged to be part of the household of God. We are privileged to be out in those fields forgiving our brothers seven times a day. To the point of sweating, blood, sweat, and tears of working through some of these confrontations and conflicts and forgivenesses and repentances. I mean, man, it is not an easy thing. But at the end of the day, what are we saying? We are unprofitable servants, right? And that was that. We are servants and sons of God. I'm drawing in this morning's message as well. Again, we are servants and the amazing love that God has poured out upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We are servants of Christ and his friends for whom he gave his life. And if the son of God is my friend and he has given his life for me, I will be his servant and I will forgive my brother 490 times. And at the end of that, you know what I'm going to say? I am an unprofitable servant. Amen and amen. Tune in next week for Brother Todd Strasser's message on this passage.